G'day, it's Russell Howcroft here. I'm the Chief Creative Officer of the Sayers Group and a founding partner. At Sayers, we believe all business, all good business, starts with a fantastic conversation. So we thought, well, let's create a podcast and let's call it Conversations. We hope you enjoy this one. Okay, so where we are, I mean, how good's this? So Freddie, Freddie's from Good One. They produce this this podcast. G'day, Freddie. Uh, we are thrilled to be here with the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, Sally Cap. Um, Sally, thank you very much for giving us some of your time. Hello, Russ. Hello, Freddie. And thank you for inviting me for a chat this afternoon. Okay, so we do want it to be a chat, no more than that. And we want it to be a good chat, of course, insightful. We want you to be, you know, go for it if you want to go for it. Say whatever you want to say. <laughs> but what I do like to do is just get the whoever's sitting in that chair. We had Barry Jones uh, um, last week. Well, the week before, Fred, not sure, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we just go through a little um, audio process where we just like you to think about where do you love having a chat? So Freddie's going to play you some sounds. Okay, another one. there lord mayor we've got fireside we have a fireside then we've got a beach and we've got a pub and we've got a boat and we've got a forest so given that we're here to have a chat where, where would you like us to be well i could picture myself in all of those places yes, yes. Yeah. but a lot of them i go for fun or solitude mm-hmm. or reflection relaxation and really, one of my favourite places is to be amongst other people. Yeah. I'm a magnet to people. <laughs> and so for a chat, yeah. one of my favourite places would be in a cafe and feeling that energy of everybody around me. Agreed. And so that's where I'm imagining we are. And okay. probably actually not far off where we are right now. Uh, yeah, perfect. All right, so we're in a cafe and there's lots of people, there's a crowd, we're feeling comfy and enjoying each other's company, um, and we're going to have a conversation about you. So I know that that's it. It can be hard. It can it can genuine genuinely be hard. I, I have a theory: mid sixties babies find it hard to talk about themselves. Even late sixties babies do too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's something. There is something about um, post boomer, not really X, which I think makes it quite difficult. I don't know. It's a theory I've got. I just. Expand on that theory for me or or just debunk it and say that's nonsense. I think it is and I think it has a lot to do with the generation that our parents were as well. Um, one of the things that was very strong in my upbringing is that I'm no one special. And I, I say that in a good way, if you know what I mean. It's, it's not to uh, undermine the unique and individual things that I can do and achieve it's just to say that uh, you know we need to respect everybody for what they bring and that uh, you know you really don't shine on your own without the work of usually a whole lot of people around you so you're no one special so uh, that sense of talking about myself is difficult. And the idea, um, it sounds like we had the same parents, the idea that um, you shouldn't get ahead of yourself or don't believe your own BS all of the above. Right. And um, do you do that with your children? 
I don't think I no, do. Of Russ. course you. Of it's course. It's the opposite. Uh, correct. Are you calling me out? No, no, uh, it no, is I'm very different, and I do think this is a generational <laughs> thing. Exactly. Uh, we really encourage uh, our. We've got two boys, Andrew and I, and we encourage them to be confident and to speak about themselves. And and I think the other part of that is now we're much more comfortable with talking about things like mental health yeah. and inquiring in a caring way about how people are and we give people that space to actually talk about themselves we didn't which didn't used to happen i mean yeah. we were just like pick yourself up and get on with it yeah. there yeah. it was none of that sort of stuff yeah. i had the best childhood by the way I please understand. don't get me wrong but uh, a very different approach and uh, and they're different and they can they both have good aspects to them maybe okay i i, I completely get it yeah. I, I totally get it so good. speaking of parenting um, you were born in Papua New Guinea. So how did how did that act? There wouldn't be very many people that have been the Lord Mayor of Melbourne that were born in Papua New Guinea. How did that happen? It's true. And I love the fact that my parents loved taking adventurous decisions in their lives. And one of them was the day after they got married to get on an old plane, <laughs> a DC-10 or something that sounds horribly dangerous these <laughs> days, and fly to Rabaul, Papua New Guinea, not even Port Moresby, which is the capital, but a, an island uh, off the mainland called Great New Britain to a town there called Rabaul, literally uh, on the side of a volcano, and uh, they went to, to work there. Dad worked for the government uh, looking after plantations at the time, uh, Papua New Guinea was a territory of Australia. It's really very interesting history yeah. of Australia and Papua New Guinea uh, those times. And uh, so Dad was there looking after cocoa, bananas, uh, coconuts, uh, plantations. Um, Mum had a dress shop and <laughs> they both played a lot of golf. How good. Uh, and so do you remember Papua New Guinea? I vaguely yeah. remember. When I say that, I've got uh, two or three very strong memories right. and then nothing else. Yeah. I remember the beauty of and the tropical lushness of the gardens and the surrounds, particularly since it was volcanic soil. It was incredibly fertile. Uh, so I remember that clearly. I remember actually um, – I, I remember being – um, tossed onto the back of a golf bag and told to keep quiet around 18 holes. Uh, but I remember, and I think this is a bit confronting, but it was really something of the time. I remember being in kindergarten and there were, were a lot of uprisings at the time as, as native Papua New Guineans, I think, rightly said, look, we want our country back. And yeah. there were uh, a lot of rebellions and it was quite a dangerous time, which is why we ultimately came home. But I remember my kindergarten teacher saying everybody under the tables because uh, the local natives were armed okay. and whilst they might not intentionally be shooting, uh, given all of the emotion at the time, guns could go off and it was quite dangerous. So that's another memory, as you can imagine, that's oh. still very much in, in my mind. Oh, well, And this being the week where Professor was kidnapped in Papua New Guinea. That's right, yeah. yes. So did, did, they did had a big earthquake, actually, in Great New Britain as well, so okay. there was a lot, lot happening up there. Okay. But, yeah, there's, there was that sense of change, and that, that change had an undercurrent to it. And it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I, I don't know that your average – well, I'm an average Australian, and I really know very little about Papua New Guinea. Mm. It's funny, isn't it? Don't it's go a shame. Yeah, so what, why, what, why is that the case? Well, I think you should ask an expert, uh, but I would say that because uh, Papua New Guinea has been developing and it's 
had uh, you know a lot of the issues of a country that's um, fulfilling its own destiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it hasn't always had a focus on tourism, uh, and you know you need infrastructure and yep. services to welcome tourists in. Having said that, uh, I spoke recently because I love scuba diving. Uh, to a friend who'd been up there on a scuba diving trip and said, you know, that sense of things that are undiscovered, that haven't been done before. And so for a lot of scuba divers, apparently, Papua New Guinea is becoming a bit of a mecca. Mm. And I think we're going to see more of that as more of the country um, becomes easier to navigate. So we've established that um, you are of an era where, like, don't get ahead of yourself, which which is, I get that from a parenting point of view. Um, At what point did you know that you were special? (laughs) <laughs> You've lured me right into this, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, let, I'll, I will. I will suggest that you are. So, at what point? At what point did you realise? Oh, okay. So, I like to lead, for example, or um, I like solving problems, or mm. there's a, there's someone over there that needs a hand. I'm going to go and give that person. At, at what point yeah. did you think um, I'm starting to form here, and I realise that there's a there's something about me which is you, 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 I mean, you're the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, right? Well, I'm lucky to have had some fairly significant uh, formative experiences uh, where I can pinpoint some of these things. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, when I was 16, I put my hand up to be an exchange student. And I didn't tell my parents because I didn't think they'd let me go, so I thought I'd wait till the end of the process. <laughs> and it was um, AFS, American Field Scholarship, and to, to be chosen you had to go through a lot of interviews and public speaking. And uh, I would tell my parents something I was doing after school, mm-hmm. netball practice, yeah. and I would go to these meetings and have prepared and I'd give my public uh, my, my speech and then answer a whole lot of questions. And I think I went through about four rounds of this to the point where we got a letter in the mail. <laughs> and at that point... <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mum said, where did this even come from? How did this happen? And I said, well, you did sign a form a little while uh, ago uh, <laughs> saying I could participate in the process. Um, she obviously thought it was an excursion or something. And uh, and I'd been chosen. Great. And I'm I'm really grateful to my parents as well because um, even though it says scholarship, um, you know you have to pay to to get there and all those sorts of things. So uh, it was an investment by them. They were shocked and they weren't sure. And I still remember my mother's face, just complete trauma and distress when mm. I got on a bus with a whole lot of other kids to drive to Sydney <laughs> uh, to get on a plane, uh, and I'd never been overseas before. It um, was a time when yep. letters were still a thing. Yeah, you know, email. you didn't you didn't do overseas calls, yeah. uh, in, in, in uh, unless it was an emergency. Yeah. And uh, I had been hoping actually to go to uh, a place where they didn't speak English because I, I really wanted to learn a language, which is still on my list. Can you believe it? I've still got to cross that off my mm. list. But uh, I, uh, you get matched to families based on some compatibility work that they do, and I got matched to a family in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, uh. And I thought, oh, well, they speak English. It's sort of going to be the same, so I'll just go and have fun at high school over there. Uh, well, after my first week in Cincinnati, Ohio my family sat me down on the Sunday morning over donuts <laughs> yeah. and said, Sally, yeah. we don't understand a word you're saying. 
<laughs> so uh, it just shows language uh, comes in all shapes and sizes. But the reason I mention that story is because I was on my own. I was 16. I've still got my diary. And from that day, I actually started counting down the days until I could leave because I was petrified oh. and uh, scared and felt very isolated and alone. Were you not loved in that environment? Well, you don't know yet. Yeah. You've yeah. just arrived. Yeah. They okay. seemed like lovely people, yeah. but well, you don't I mean. know. Well, like yeah. They weren't sort of hateful oh, people. Oh, no, they were absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. My yeah. American dad asked me 20 times on the way home from the airport, yeah. was I too hot or too cold? Yeah. Yes. Um, I called him dad from the moment I saw him yeah. because I wanted to get into the yeah. experience. And you stay in this program with the one family for the entire year. And I can tell you, I pushed every single boundary. I had a younger sister and a younger brother there, Susanna, uh, and uh, I'm so grateful to that family for taking me in because I learned so much about myself in that year. I am resilient. I am resourceful. Mm. I am strong. I was different. I went to an American high school and they all thought I was a weirdo. Yeah. You know, I had to break into the cool gang and, you and go? it took a while. <laughs> <laughs> Had to find my cool first. But, uh, you know, I did the musicals and the dramas and, oh, my gosh, I threw myself at absolutely everything and I surprised myself at what I was capable of in that year. And And I still call them mum and dad. Yeah, That was my next question. I'm going to guess you still keep – that you keep in touch. Uh, Andrew called them to ask for my hand in marriage. That's how close we are. Uh, And we catch up for reunions uh, at least every five years. We just caught up last year, 27 of us in Italy. Uh, I speak to them regularly. Uh, They're my mum and dad still. And my mum and dad understand. We've all been to each other's weddings, um, holidayed together it's, uh, it's, it's what extended family is all about. They're, they're not the family you're born into, they're the family you choose. And I, I learnt that as mm-hmm. well. And mm-hmm. So look, just by the end of the year, I can tell you I was um, so sad about every day that passed where I was going to have to leave. Closer, yeah. And uh, that feeling of being torn at the end, I was so looking forward to coming home and seeing my family Uh, but I was so torn about leaving a place and people that I loved. And I went through all of those emotions at 16. A good year to be away, though, as far as mum and dad were concerned. (laughs) Uh, Yes. um, Not that I didn't try a lot of things uh, when I came back. I I started wagging for the first time in my life when I got home. But I can tell you, when my American dad came marching down the stairs in his white wife runs to tell me off because I'd missed my curfew... Uh, they were real parenting child moments. Right. And my American sister particularly says to me, thank God you came because our curfew was going to be 9pm and all of a sudden <laughs> it was 12 because that was better than 2am. <laughs> so I pushed all those teenage boundaries. You're right, Russ. It was a good year for my parents that I was away. Good on you. Now, um, so back to ta- back to Melbourne. Mm. Um, school, did well at school, uh, Went got to Melbourne University and honours graduate economics law, yes, and then you started. Were you you're already a worker, weren't you? You already had sort of teenage jobs and stuff. But then I think I'm right in saying you then got you went headfirst into hardcore work as, as a postgraduate. Is that right? I did. Yes. So I am a worker ant. I'm still a worker ant. Mm. Uh, I I think that's true. I uh, love to roll my sleeves up and and get into it. 
Uh, and a big work ethic was another thing instilled in me, valuing other people and, and work ethic, mm. um, very important. Uh, but I tell you, um, I did go away at the end of my university to Budapest and I stayed there for a while at a time when ah, communist. the communists yeah. were leaving yeah. and all this foreign capital was coming in. I worked at Baker and McKenzie. I absolutely loved it. Um, but in those days, you really did need to do your articles to practice. Right. And I had articles lined up back in Melbourne, so I did come home eventually after many phone calls. Uh, and uh, it was uh, full on. I used to get up at about four in the morning. Uh, I'd pick my boss up on the way in. Uh, I would work through to ten at least at night. Yeah. It was those days of... Uh, pre-computer uh, yep. as well, uh, so a lot of manual labour and uh, and then that's how I am. I, I love that and uh, I really enjoyed it. My first job, my first proper job as a young lawyer, I learnt a lot of some of what have become my, my career rules mm-hmm. as well and I learnt them the hard way. Tell, tell, career rules, tell us. Well, the one that stands out the most is that you need to be able to tell people what you want and when I say that, it's really important that you take responsibility for your own career and your own happiness mm-hmm. because people can't read your mind. They don't know what your priorities or agendas are and unless you express it in a way that's authentic to you, uh, then you're really holding yourself back. Right. People can't help you. Um, that you. They can't... Uh, you, you're not even... I guess, saying it to the universe. So how could others uh, understand? So um, believe it or not, I'm not somebody that feels comfortable walking around with a billboard uh, around my neck telling people what I want. Um, But the reason this became a a rule for me is because when I started work, I did those really long hours, Russ, and I was sure that somebody would notice that I was a good worker, highly talented, and they would give me other opportunities. Um, But no. But no. And when I went through my fourth performance review and uh, I was given a small pay rise and encouraged to keep doing what I'm doing in the mortgages practice, which was a little bit tedious, uh, I looked at my boss and I was thinking in my head of all of the other opportunities I'd seen colleagues getting I thought of all of the resentment that I had built up Mm -hmm. through three other performance reviews where I really hadn't had any sense of investment in me Uh, and I did what every, you know, confident, articulate, well-educated person does. Yeah, you. Burst into tears. Like, absolutely Yeah, But you don't regret that. You don't oh, that, not do you? at all, because no. I tell you what happened. Mm. I looked at my boss at that moment when I was in floods of tears and he was shocked right. and he was concerned. Yeah. And I realised he didn't know what was going on. Yeah, so, so you hadn't articulated. Hadn't articulated. So yeah. I went out of the room. I had to compose myself. I came back in with a box of tissues and I sat down and, and I was angry but I was curious because I could tell he had no idea and I said... I'm expecting you to say to me, you're awesome, now we're giving you this extra, you know, go and work on an M&A transaction or take a secondment to a client and you're just telling me to do the same thing. And he said, Sally, you seem so happy coming in here every day. Ah. You're doing such a great job in mortgages. You're generating lots of money. I was the top units per hour per day person. Yeah. And why would we change? (laughs) 
You seem so happy. You're making us money. Well, it's a brilliant combination. Yeah. So I – and I know that the way we manage people these days has changed drastically too, which needed to happen. I'm still mates with that boss and, and that situation really taught me that unless I am expressing what I hope for, what I aspire to, the sorts of challenges and opportunities I want – um, then it's ridiculous for me to expect those to come my way. I it's actually tough. need to take responsibility. It's, it, I mean, it's a great it's a great thing to articulate, but to actually do that is hard, especially when you've been told to not get ahead of yourself. Well, not only that, it, that, right. that same law firm, I, I was asked to attend a meeting with another senior partner and this was the topic we were discussing with the client. So diligently I went away and I looked at all the legislation and I looked at the interpretation of that and case law I was so prepared I go into the meeting um, they start a conversation at one point the client actually looked at me so I Mm -hmm. shared what I'd learned and I got the stoniest look from the partner and when we got in the lift afterwards he said I don't give a fuck what you think right yeah yeah you mm. are not to speak yeah, I think we've in all those been. meetings. We've all been in there. We've all been there. <laughs> so I was already a, feeling a little bit yeah, sensitive. As an ambitious junior person, yeah, they want well, you to keep your mouth shut. You want it, Exactly. Right, isn't but you that, want to articulate. Isn't that the way? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, look, they're all those lessons and you do have to find a way. And the way that I've found, and I still do this, is I say this is what I've enjoyed or this is what I'd like to know more about That's or good. those are the sorts of situations or transactions I'd like to be involved in and of course all of those skills culminated in me standing out in the public saying I want to be Lord Mayor there's never been anything scarier than that but I had practiced over decades of being able to share what I wanted and that helps. So what made you not want to be a lawyer because you were uh, you know as I say honours graduate and working at a great firm doing really well they think you're brilliant but then all of a sudden you're a banker. Yeah, well, what happened was I think you get to a stage in your career when you're an advisor where they, where, and, and there's great variety and there are lots of professional challenges and it can be very satisfying but where you think I'm either going to keep advising yeah. and there's a satisfaction in that or I'm actually going to go out and have a go at this myself. Mm. And I got caught by that bug with... Two kids under two mm. and a husband who already had his own high-risk business. And so I went out uh, with a former client and we started um, what I call an adventure capital business <laughs> because we took a lot of risk, yeah. not just venture capital. And we literally started sitting across from each other in a desk in an office like this, Russ, with a pencil and a piece of paper and went, what now? Okay. So uh, we used our combined skills. He came from the broking side uh, to do a lot of um, public company listings and investments. And uh, we had a ball for, for about five years. And again, I learned so much in that situation because there aren't many soft landings when it's you and a mate and your own resources, uh, and most of them are limited. And it really takes a lot of guts to do that, but you get a lot out of it as well, which I hope Freddie is learning uh, as well. Indeed. And, and uh, uh, that listed? Yeah, we listed that, which was right. a whole other big experience. Yeah. There uh, we go. So, yes, uh, listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. Who knows yes. uh, what's possible? In fact, anything's possible. That's yeah. what I learned. Nothing is impossible. So uh, there's something in that and... 
listed that and then uh, I actually thought uh, I was running uh, one of the sort of bottom five five percent in terms of market cap listed companies because we were small mm-hmm. um i wonder what it's like being involved in one a, of the big really, guys a really big one yeah <laughs> so, so ANZ. Uh, so i went to anz and um just learned so much ceo i worked in the ceo's office yeah i started as a bit of a troubleshooter and around the business and then which is fun yeah and then ended up working with john mcfarlane as chief of staff and um, there are so many things I learned there, but one of the really great things that John taught me is about decision-making and how important it is for leaders to be able to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Because when you're in big organisations like that, there's so much talent, there are so many resources, and let's think about it, every question can have a million responses. Every strategy could have yep. a zillion ways of, of looking at it, considering it, approaching it. But at the end of the day, somebody's got to make a decision mm-hmm. and that sits with leaders and he used it as a real demarcation of leadership. Um, not the only one, but one. And the thing I really liked about it uh, that resonated with me is that when you make a decision, the real skill then is quickly assessing whether it was the right decision and then making another decision. Mm. But it really takes the scariness of making a decision away when you think about the fact that all is required is to make another decision. When you work out it might not have been the best one. It just gives you that momentum and it takes away that sort of insurmountable uh, element that sits in front of you when you're weighing up so many risks, so many pros and cons, so many ways forward. Just make a decision. So do you like making decisions? I do. Yeah. Um, And... That is uh, – certainly that's got to be a quality that is highly valued and it's been highly valued by quite a lot of organisations. I'm just going to read out a list here, Sal, Sally. Um, okay, so you've also – yes, senior role at ANZ, senior role at KPMG. You were the first female board member at the Collingwood Footy Club, correct? Yep. Whoa! Uh, as we've already, already, already discussed, took a small business to listing on the ASX. Um, you've been the CEO of the Committee for Melbourne – You've been a COO of the Victoria Chamber, Victoria Employers Chamber of Commerce. You've also been the first female Victoria Agent General. That's uh, that's Victoria's, you know, let's call it head of sales, but that's for not just the UK, it's also Europe and Israel. Um, I've probably missed out on some things. Now you're the Lord Mayor. So making good decisions has got to be part of succeeding in those roles. But so is making bad decisions. Mm-hmm, tell. Because you know, I... I'm somebody that's become very comfortable with risk and you need to be. I mean, I've had more than my fair share of humiliations and failures and embarrassing moments, really. And uh, they're the ones where you learn the most. (laughs) They're the the times when you really do learn the most and I've come to really value that part of risk-taking, which is to respect failure. And again, I think it helps me move forward to make decisions because uh, I'm prepared, okay, this might not work out, but what will I take from that? What is the value that won't just help me move one step forward next time but ten steps forward? The the notion of respecting failure or, you know, embracing failure, uh, you and I, we've heard that for our whole careers. Um, And the reason why we've heard it our whole careers is because we feel that it's not really done in the Australian context correct so what do we so given that we've heard about it for let's say 30 plus years and let's suggest that that actually hasn't changed our attitude to failure hasn't changed what do we do about that 
Oh, it's such a conundrum. It's hard, right? Yeah, because it, it's really it goes to culture yeah. as well, you know, and who we are and what we value. And it's really annoying for me, or more than annoying actually, when I see those demonstrations of tall poppy syndrome, mm-hmm. of undermining. Uh, in fact, one of my other career rules is to mitigate myself as a risk because of those environments you go into. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty sad that you have to do that, but it's yep. been a big reason why I've been able to change career. I'm a millennial before my time, let's face <laughs> it, but um, to change career so often is because I'm willing to embrace risk, but also I've I've learned how to mitigate myself as a risk as well. And, so yeah. I think making bad decisions, nobody wants to do it. Of course, you 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 always try and look at the risks and make the best decision you can. But if it's the wrong decision, it doesn't have to be completely bad either. So you've worked in the UK for four years, five years? As four the, years. Four years yeah. as, the, uh, as the Agent General, Victorian Agent General. So what did you learn there in terms of decision-making, culture, leadership that you've been able to bring back here? Oh, interesting one. Uh, I learned a lot about... Uh, I think it, it built on my sense of really appreciating different cultures and difference, which started when I was an exchange student, because we're very isolated here in Australia, and although we're multicultural, it's pretty much our way. Yes. Uh, so um, that was really important for me, and I I learned a lot about Australia's place in the world. I mean, we're cool. I think we're awesome. But a lot of not a lot of people know about us. That's I was really surprised yeah, to true. get there and to realise our, you know, relativity in the world um, is one. Firstly, nothing really happens in the southern hemisphere. That's material. Everything's in the northern hemisphere. As far as the northern hemisphere is concerned, correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you're in the UK, it's a bit like the the Greek father in my big fat Greek wedding, you know, <laughs> know when everything started in Greece. Yeah. So when you're in the UK, yep. everything, like we have the Royal Society of Victoria, they just have Royal Society. <laughs> it's not <laughs> of anywhere, it started there. It's all that sort of stuff, yeah. that, that it's the history, it's how long those things have been in place and it made me appreciate our new, newness and youth. Yes, it made me also appreciate how we're not tied into norms or cultural expectations in ways yep. uh, that they are. But at the same time, one of the reasons we came home is because our boys said they really it resonated with them that so many people that they were at school with had a strong sense of identity. Mm-hmm. And what is our identity? Mm-hmm. And they wanted to come home to at least establish themselves as Australians. But it made me think... What, what, it, what, it, what is it to be Australian? And I think we're starting to get into more of those really meaningful conversations in Australia, which I'm so pleased to see. We've still got a long way to go. Uh, so I learnt that. I learnt how hard it is to get people to consider doing and setting up a business on the other side of the world. Um, perhaps not the same sort of risk profile that we have. We're great travellers. You know, we're used to... S- digging holes in the ground and hoping there's something down there, mm-hmm. um, sort of risk profile, uh, and the list goes on and on. But look, one of the biggest learnings, and I'll just bring it back to risk for a moment, was happened to me when I was in Israel. I went to see one of the top investors there, uh, wanted to uh, have that organisation involved with some of the transactions that we were considering. Um, I took a pitch deck that had all of our successes, you know, the things that... Um, I thought he would be interested in that would 
resonate around how successful an investment could be. And he said, um, he stopped me about five slides in and he yeah. said, have you got some failures in there? <laughs> yeah. And I said, no, nah, <laughs> absolutely <course> not. not. <laughs> uh, never. And he said, because I only invest in people, projects and organisations that can demonstrate to me five failures <laughs> and what they've learnt from it. Because he said, I don't want to invest yeah. in the early stage That's good, isn't failure it? bits. I'm going straight to the bit where yeah. you're using those learnings That's good. to leverage the way forward. And uh, he could be like that because he was a top investor. But it, again, it just brought home to me how different our cultures are and some of the things that we could be better it's at. It's smart, isn't it? It's it's like don't fail with my money. Have you failed? With, have you failed <laughs> exactly. with other? You failed with other other Tell money, me. and you've learned. Great, yeah. right? Then I'll give you some cash. But, you know, better than him saying, uh, you know, I believe you when you've had no failures. Yes, yeah. You know, that it's only good that you've had successes as well. Um, and they've got a great risk profile over there. But can I come back to people? I think every time I'm in situations like that, it's about learning about people, how they operate what I love about people, what I'm not so sure about and how to surround myself more and more with people, you know, that I respect, uh, that I can learn from, um, that I can influence in positive ways, hopefully, at this stage of my life for us uh, and um, that will push me. So it's, when you're sort of talking about the Australian story, you know, that's, you know the Australian story, it's, it's tough. Who and what we are, and how how we want to project ourselves out into the world, um, you know, to use a horrible word, brand Australia can be confusing. The bit which um, I I believe is that many of us, if we're really honest, are Melbournians first, Victorians second, and Australians third. If you had, if you actually had to rank it, what is it about Melbourne that you're passionate about? Oh, so many things. <laughs> Come uh, on. Uh, I, I'm just um, – and the nice thing is I'm always delighted to learn new things um, that we're good at. Uh, so, look, I mentioned that, that stuff about what I learnt when I was Agent General and one of the, the elements was that people just don't know enough about Melbourne, Victoria and Australia. They don't realise how good our education system is and we probably take that for granted as well. I don't anymore. Mm. Uh, they don't realise how sophisticated our financial services system is. I mean, our superannuation system can always be improved, but it's up there in the tops in the world. Of the world, yeah. And, you know, we should appreciate and really leverage those mm. sorts of things. Our medical system? Our medical, our biotech precinct, medical precinct is, well, pharmacology school just got number one in the world oh, I didn't know up that. there. Really? Yeah. So, and we're seeing, you know, big companies like CSL that could easily go offshore, they are putting an even bigger footprint here in Melbourne, our hospitals, universities and the list go on. Mm. Um, so much to be proud of from, you know, an events capital, but a culture capital, a sporting capital. I love Melbourne because it's multicultural and people can see themselves here in Melbourne and that brings a level of comfort and familiarity and a sense of belonging, which I think gives people the confidence to really expand and extend themselves in different ways. And that multiculturalism is exhibited in so many different ways, you know, obviously from food and, 
and arts but through to the influences we're now seeing coming through in this new generation uh, where I really hope that barriers are coming down and that features such as racism are diminishing as they should. Uh, So I'm excited about that. I'm excited that we're up for big conversations Um, but there are still things that we need to keep improving and fixing. There's no doubt about that and, well, life would be boring Otherwise, wouldn't exactly. it, if there weren't uh, those challenges? There's got to be problems to fix. Yeah. Okay, so pandemic, I think we should cover it um, even quickly. So that would have been just, well, you didn't you didn't uh, sign up or you didn't ask for votes to be the Lord Mayor because you thought you are going to be a part of managing a pandemic. So just give us some headlines around what you learned. Well, well extreme experience for all of us, uh, particularly here in Melbourne. Um, high stress, high trauma, Uh, and how to operate uh, in the immediacy and the urgency of a crisis when you've never done it before. I mean, this is what we we all experienced. Um, There were some key reflections for me. Um, One of them was at a time when there's so much human loss and human emotion, being human is really important (laughs) in our leaders. That that to me was absolutely central. And it was the centrepiece of everything that we did at Town Hall as well, was to show the vulnerability, um, know and and recognise that there was fear and anger. Uh, But the other side of it was um, there were lots of different types of leadership demonstrated through the pandemic and I really um, came to not just understand but fully embrace uh, my own sense of optimism and positivity even in a time of crisis because for me to know that uh, there are these really difficult situations but to be able to express what we were doing in the form of solutions and give hope Mm -hmm. and create some momentum towards something uh, you know that was tolerable at a time that seemed uh that, that was not just seemed but that was so difficult uh, that that's the way I am that's not always uh, something that that others mm-hmm. see as leadership or think is is right um, but it also brought a great sense of resolve to me because if I thought it was important or I thought it was the right thing to do then I was going to do it even with the barrage yep. of criticism It taught me a lot about teamwork because you need all of those influences at a time of crisis. You've got to think quickly. So the more brains and inputs you've got around you, the more quickly you can respond because you don't want to be in a dwindling prism of thinking and ideas. You want to be in an expansive one. Uh, It's the um, only way to be. Um, A couple of things I was going to add. One was the first thing we did at Town Hall was to say... What is it absolutely essential that we continue doing in a time of crisis? What do people rely on us for that no one else is doing, whether it's another level of government or another organisation, like collect the rubbish? Yeah, um, homeless. Helping the homeless. So we brought that laser focus to those things first. And in doing that, that builds confidence. Okay, those things are happening even in a crisis. So what else can we then deal with? And that created a bit of a social licence to then take some risks on things. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, it, believe it or not, extending outdoor dining into the dining parklets was a big risk because of so course. many people said 
it won't work in Melbourne. I can give you yeah, lots yeah, of uh, yeah. um, responses that we had, but we really thought it was worth doing and we needed to do it quickly. Uh, and we did that and it's become a permanent feature of Melbourne. That's that's just one thing. Of course, the biggest silver lining was helping people that had been rust sleeping in our city and yes. to know that so many of them are, are now in long-term accommodation is one of the best silver linings of COVID. So there were these elements, but I don't want to not acknowledge how difficult and heartbreaking it was for so many. So, of course, there's the mantra, don't waste a crisis. So if you if you reflect on that time, so like you could have done anything really, you know, you could, oh, well, let's do X. So have you reflected on the crisis and thought, oh, that, it's a pity we didn't find a way to do uh, blah. You, there may not be an answer to that question. Or let me put it another way: Has the did the pandemic give you a greater focus and greater sense about what you want Melbourne to be? It's an interesting one because um, where we did accelerate um, some things because the opportunity was there. Um, I use the great modern oracle Homer Simpson. It was a crisisunity, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, so we rolled out uh, kilometres of protected bicycle lanes because our streets were empty, we could keep construction jobs going, we could deliver on a long-term strategy for the city. Um, It's created uh, quite uh, a a debate and divide as people have come back. Um, But we know that that was always our long-term plan and we took advantage of that moment to to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So some of the reflections then are really about how could we have done that better so that people were more informed and... We'd communicated better about that change because we'd just gone through so much turbulence. People were probably looking for a bit more of the return to the same and they came to a city that was really quite different. So I think those are some of the learnings Mm. from the things that we've done. But if I can just say that um, even when we were in the immediacy and the urgency of crisis, there was still an expectation and a need that we remained dedicated to progress on key things like responding to homelessness, um, the, the building more housing, uh, being uh, ahead of uh, the uh, issues of climate change mm-hmm. and knowing that these are long-term issues that were there before the pandemic that would be there after the pandemic and we needed to show progress on those big issues too. And that was a whole other piece of work uh, that we dedicated ourselves to at Town Hall so that we could really progress on those issues. So let's call it the year 2030. So what's that, seven years, seven, in seven years' time? Um, what, what's the city look like? It's a great question. Firstly, there would be a, a lot more affordable housing in the city so that people can live near where they work. Yeah. And we have a housing crisis in Australia, Victoria, Melbourne, and we need to get on with delivering more affordable housing based on low to moderate income technicalities. But uh, that's really important. So there'd be more people living here in affordable housing. As in on the the grid, in in central Melbourne. Yeah, across our municipality. Well, you know, we've got two big urban growth areas, Arden in North Melbourne and Fisherman's Bend. So much capacity there. Let's really put affordable housing as a focus in amongst all the jobs going to be created there. Let's really be a showcase Another feature of the city would be our green credentials from seeing more green around the city, green rooftops, green walls, more Mm. parks, more pocket parks, 
more trees, uh, but seeing more evidence of how we've transitioned to a sustainable city in terms of more solar. Uh, we're putting a network of um, community-scale batteries together uh, and they're going to be located around the city. Um, looking at how we deal with FOGO, knowing that our food waste is going into our parks and gardens yep. and that really brings us to that circular economy so we're being more thoughtful about how we deal with those materials. And I think Melbourne has the chance to be an exemplar in Australia, the region and, and beyond in terms of being a centre for innovation on clean energy particularly, uh, but on other areas of, of circularity. So I, I'd love to see us really leading the way there. Great. Uh, and look, I would say um, we want to retain and continue to grow our status as a city that really appreciates creativity and the arts and culture uh, and coming together in big events, whether they're sporting uh, or cultural uh, because we are a city of people and at the end of the day, the thing that makes cities is people mm -hmm. and and we want Melbourne to be differentiated, to continue to be differentiated as a city of experiences, of of sharing and enjoying those moments with other people, whether we know them or they're strangers. That's one of the things I love. And I often go to things on my own these days as well. And I just love that yeah. feeling that I can walk into that because I'll be surrounded by other people that are appreciating that moment. Melbourne. Yeah, Appreciate and it. Melbourne. So this is uh, Freddie, as you know. So I, at, at the end of our podcast, I ask Freddie um, if he's got a question. Um, and he, it looks like he does because he's nodding. So Freddie is going to ask you a question, Lord Mayor. Thank you, Russ, and thank you, Sally. Um, I have an ambitious question. Go for um, it. Let me know if it's a bit abstract. Um, but let's say right now there is a 22, 23-year-old uh, who's just uh, blitzed through uni and they have now found themselves in the, you know, as a knowledge worker. Uh, this person is incredibly ambitious, um, uh, incredibly intelligent, um, has just a heap of potential and uh, an incredible amount Are of... Are you describing yourself? No, no, What's no. What's going on here? I was hoping it would be more of a mirror. Um, <laughs> but uh, incredibly self-motivated. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's not a lot of advice that they feel might apply to them because they know it already. So is there, from your perspective, a mistake that they need to make in order to achieve their full potential? Yes, I, 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 there is. And I, I guess the first challenge is for a person to feel that they are all of those things at 22, 23, they've stayed in their comfort zone. So the first thing I would say to them is go out and try something of which they have no skill, no talent, they might think they've got no interest and actually challenge themselves in that way because... Um, it feels uh, like a life maybe well-lived but to boundaries that are relatively uh, small. So I, I would really look at it from that perspective and open some gates for them by suggesting um, some very, very different things to do. And the great thing about Melbourne is that there are a plethora of those opportunities to get involved well outside comfort zones. It's something I do most days. <laughs> good on you, good on you, Sal. Great so, question. Yeah, great. We've been speaking to Sally Cap, the Lord Mayor of Melbourne. Um, formerly, formerly first female Victorian Agent General of Victoria, uh, the COO of Victorian Employees Chamber of Commerce, the CEO of the Committee for Melbourne, worked with ANZ, worked with KPMG, 
um, was a solicitor, um, started a business that finished up on the ASX, a dead set star. We're lucky to have you as the Lord Mayor. Thank you very much for your time, Sal. Thanks, Russ. Thanks, Freddie. It's been a delight.